think it's pretty hard to argue with the fact that the larger you get as an application, the larger the incentives are to own more of the stack or control all of your economics. And they're aware that if an app basically starts taking up, you know, represents the majority of value being created or the majority of fees on Solana, the incentives to then move to their own chain are very high. If I'm a Solana developer, how do I think about keeping these apps, even the most successful ones in the network, despite these incentives? And I think that this is getting towards that sort of idea of like, how do we keep them on Solana, but give them more ownership? All right, everyone, we will be back to the program in just a moment. But before we do, I want to share something that Blockworks has been cooking up for these last couple of months. March of this coming year in London, Blockworks is hosting DAS London, the largest institutionally focused conference in all of crypto. Goldman, JP Morgan, Point72, all in one room so you can know what the big money is doing. So click the link at the bottom of this episode. It'll take you right over to the homepage and use Bell20 for 20% off. I will see you in sunny London town in March. Episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer. The views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Today, you got me and Miles holding down the fort. Holding down the old fort, Miles. <laughs> good to be back. Good to be back. <laughs> yeah. Um, this was a good week. We got to hang out a little bit in person uh, this week um, yeah. here in New York. Yeah. It's been lovely. Great to be here. Yeah. I've been, I've been coming quite a bit. This is where all the action is. Um, and yeah, got to, got to, we had fun at a little Solana meetup uh, earlier this week. So good to, uh, yeah, good to be here. That was great. Yeah, we'll we'll talk a little bit about that. Blockworks hosted a little Solana research hang in our office, so we had um, some of the folks from Ellipsis, Gito, MarginFi. Um, yeah, it was it was a really good hang. Talked a lot about fees on Solana and the the fee market. You know, a lot of which is not working particularly well right now. And I think fees are actually kind of the hottest topic within the Solana community. A lot of very interesting ideas about how to fix the fee market, and we'll get into we'll get into some of those later. Um, you know, I think, I think what I wanted to chat with you about, uh, cause it's something that you and I talk about a good amount off air is, uh, data availability. It feels like that's going to be an enormous or data publishing as it's about to get rebranded. Um, you know, as, as we move, yeah, it's so as, as we move into the new year, it feels like this is incredibly important one, um, because if this bull market ends up coming back, there's going to be a bunch of activity that flows, especially onto Ethereum today and the largest cost for rollups on ethereum uh it's completely variable as well is da so right now basically the dominant solution is for rollups to pay data availability to ethereum um and there's been you know in recent months a whole bunch of new solutions have cropped up uh including eigen da um which is the first sort of in-house uh, use case for eigenlayer restaking there's celestia there's Polygon Avail, Espresso has its own data availability solution. I want to emphasize that there's a bunch of different DA solutions out there, um, even with some kind of, you know, like near is being used uh, or it's being sort of touted or experimented with as a, um, as a, as a DA solution for Ethereum. Even Solana, I think Rome, there's a startup which basically uses uh, Solana for ETH rollup DA. So there's a bunch of different flavors of this. I think, you know, to not boil the ocean, you and I are going to focus on what is probably the leading two solutions today and the one that you and I maybe know the best, which is uh, Celestia and Eigen DA. That's not to say there aren't other flavors and solutions out there, but um, maybe just for the for the purpose of compare and contrasting in a hopefully useful and somewhat nuanced way. Those are the two they're going to focus on. Miles, maybe can I call on you here to just, just give her a view of, you know, what is data availability? Why is it so critical? Um, and where does it sit in sort of the cost structure for rollups today? Yeah, absolutely. So we definitely uh, are entering the period of the, uh, the DA wars. Um, and it's, it's funny because it is, it is such a, I would say, you know, not, super sexy topic uh on the surface but it is going to you know i think be critically important for scaling really a roll-up centric future uh which is where we're going with everything right so maybe first of all like what why is da important and why are people you know building all of these alt da solutions and so just as a quick refresher you know 
data from rollups needs to be published somewhere where everybody can see it, right? Um, and then they can dispute the data if, if, if need be. Um, and if the data is withheld by a sequencer, bad things can happen, right? Funds can be stolen, um, you know, in, in the case of optimistic rollups. Um, and, you know, at the very least, you basically cannot continue the state of the rollup, right? So if the sequencer were to, were to drop out and the DA wasn't published anywhere, nobody could continue the rollup. So this is a critical function of, of all rollups. Um, and it's about 90% uh, of the transaction costs for today's rollups that use Ethereum for DA and settlement is attributed to these DA costs, right? Um, so why do we care about DA and why are all these solutions coming out? It's because I think right now with rollups, this you know tried and true uh, rollup that uses Ethereum for settlement and DA, you get 10x cheaper fees. But if you, you know, with the solutions like Celestia, you go from 10x to 100x cheaper fees. And this is really important because if we are going to have this, you know, proliferation of rollups, um, these Alt-DA solutions, at least today, are necessary to make them, you know, I guess, viable economically. Um, most rollups, you know, if you're just a new upstart and you want to have your own execution environment and you're going to be, it's going to take a long time to, you know, attract a lot of volume and users, you're not going to be profitable. Um, and so I think that that, you know, has really stymied the, the growth of rollups today. It's why we have a lot of these like large rollup hubs, but very few, I would say rollup app chains. Um, so I think the combination of RAS providers that kind of abstract away the complexities of building and Alt-DA solutions that make these rollups economically viable is really what's going to kind of like kick off this, you know, proliferation of, of rollups. Um, so maybe just to pause there, that's, that's kind of why everybody is talking about this. That's why it's because it's still a large bottleneck. There's an enormous yeah. amount of emphasis on TPS. But really, ultimately, if you're still for, for a rollup, basically what we've done with rollups, right, is we've moved execution uh, off of ETH main chain primarily, yeah. right? So we put it off in this own little segmented cordoned off uh, block space. And, you know, we've, we've borrowed the security through this clever arrangement of, of rollups. But ultimately, um, that allows them to sort of batch transactions and post down to the L1, which is much more efficient. You also have a larger, more centralized sequencer, which is just better for you know, sort of compute costs and throughput. But if you're still using Ethereum as the data availability solution, then you haven't really solved much because that bottleneck still exists. The rollups are going to have to pay a bunch to ETH validators for DA, and all of those costs are going to get passed back onto the user. So there are a couple of solutions here. There's there's an ETH native solution, which is 4844 proto-dank sharding, where we're going to get basically a differentiated sort of subsidized form of resource in the form of blobs, which is... Um, a different resource to than gas on ethl one eventually we're going to get full dank sharding which should make those costs even cheaper but in the meantime the market is providing alternative solutions uh which are these alternative da layers um and i i do think it's worth talking about some of the businesses that are cropping up here to support that those integrations and making it even easier so today conduit just announced which is a roll-up as a service provider for the op stack they just announced that they're partnering with celestia so you can imagine, you know, the friction of starting your own app chain, you know, to your to your previous point, a couple of like a year and a half ago, where you basically had to do everything yourself. Um, you know, you're still paying uh, data availability costs, e validators, but now with Conduit, you get a one click. You know, you can very easily spin up essentially your own your own roll up app chain, and then if it integrates seamlessly with Celestia, you can pay cheap data availability costs. So. You know, to your point, I think the frictions of of launching your own chain is is getting drastically lowered, even in real time. Yeah, it is. I um, I, I was reading that conduit thread, and just for fun, I clicked on the the link to actually go deploy your own rollup, and it's it's shockingly easy. Um, it's like actually a couple couple clicks, and then there's an option that says, "Do you want to use Ethereum? This gives you 10x cheaper fees, or do you want to use Celestia? This gives you 100x cheaper fees." And so if I'm, you know, putting my shoes in the, putting myself in the shoes of like the next, you know, hundred roll-up developers that are going to come in as soon as this bull market comes back, right? Um, and I have those two options and it says I could either have 10x or 100x. I'm probably going to choose the, the 100x. And I think that, you know, today 
Celestia has a head start. They've been, you know, building, they, they are kind of the, the pioneers of, of modular blockchains in the first place. And really this concept of data availability or data publishing. Um, and so, the, you know, they've got a lot of integrations already with the large frameworks, but you can see a future where, you know, a developer comes in and he's got kind of an array of options um, for DA solutions. And it's just a matter of time. Um, and so, yeah, maybe we can start getting into like, if, if putting ourselves, you know, in the shoes of this developer, what are like the sort of decisions and trade-offs um, in selecting these? If you're, you know, if you now have five different options that all say hundred X cheaper fees, um, you know, which one are you going to choose? Yes. All right, let's get into it. And again, we're going to use the focus on the the two examples of EigenDA and Celestia. So Miles, could you just kind of walk us through, uh, you know, just mechanically, what do these two different um, solutions look like today? And maybe if you could uh, explain the the sort of distinction in between uh, DAS, uh, data availability sampling, which is sort of pioneered on Celestia, and then DA scaling, uh, which EigenDA takes advantage of. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe I think I think a lot of it does come down to those two concepts and the truth, or at least what I've you know kind of observed is that it's very hard to optimize for both. You can either optimize for DA scaling or DA um, sampling. And what that actually means is, you know, with DA scaling, this is saying, okay, we want basically all this data to be available somewhere, but we want you know, to keep the requirements of the node operators of this network very low. So we don't want every single node operator to have to download all of the data. Um, and the way we're going to do this is basically, you know, if we have, let's say a hundred rollups and they all have data, uh, and we have say 10 validators instead of, you know, just having, I guess, validator one download data from rollups one through 10 validator two download rollups from you know, uh, 11 through 20. Um, we're going to mix and match all this data together uh, in a complex configuration using something called eraser coding. And that will allow basically anybody to recover the full data set if only say 10% of these validators are, are you know, running. Um, so that is, you know, DA scaling. That's to say, okay, we're, how do we basically optimize for, you know, um, scaling the consensus bandwidth or scaling the, the bandwidth of these, um, of this network by not making every single validator download all the data. Now, DA sampling, this does not optimize for, I would say like bandwidth scaling. Um, this optimizes for you know, basically everybody, um, who is not a full node validator can verify that the data was published or not, even though they are not downloading all of the data. So with DA sampling, you're gonna say, okay, we're gonna have a very heavy validator set. Every validator is gonna download all of the data. Um, and we're gonna basically, you know, we can do this because we have optimized a separate chain, Celestia, right? To specialize in just making this, you know, as scalable as possible. It's still pretty heavy for these full node validators. But if you are a rollup, you know, a Celestia native rollup, and uh, the benefit of this is really that you can, even if every single validator is lying to you, you will be able to find out through sampling this data. And so what that actually means is that all of the data is downloaded by the validators, but then it is eraser coded on the way out to another sort of network of light nodes they call it this mm. halo network, right? And through DA sampling, um, this halo network of light nodes can basically prove that, you know, the data is being withheld, even if 100% of the validators were colluding. And you could not do this if you were optimizing for DA scaling, because each of the validators does not actually hold all of the data. Um, and so it's really optimizing for, okay, do I want everybody in the world who is not a full node validator to be able to prove that the data is there or not, you know, on chain, um, or do I want basically to, uh, you know, scale the number of, uh, the, the bandwidth that can go through this network, um, 
And, you know, maybe I have some sort of trade-offs around the fact that it'd be very hard to, you know, kind of recover this data if 100% of the, the nodes were malicious. Yeah. All right. That was a really helpful explanation. I want to caveat to the audience now. This is where you and I are going to leave sort of these formal definitions and maybe wade into slightly more speculative waters and just try to guess um, at, you know, really we're, we're getting into pretty uh, deep technical stuff here. I'd guess there's probably 50 people in the world that deeply understand the the engineering sort of coding level implications of this. But I think, I think it's important to poke at the implications of these two different constructions. So where my mind goes is, okay, you know, what are the differences really in between these solutions if I'm a, if I'm a roll-up framework, right? Or, a, or if I have an app chain and, you know, the first thing that sort of comes to mind is cost, right? So how competitive can Eigen DA versus Celestia be on cost? And then what are the security guarantees? You know, is there, is there really a difference, a meaningful difference in between on the Eigen DA solution? Okay. All of the validators, basically they're getting little pieces of the data that you could very easily reconstruct versus in the Celestia example, fewer beefier full nodes, but ultimately it's being erasure coded on the, you know, when it's being sent out to all these different light nodes, like, is there a meaningful security trade-off there? I I'm not actually 100% sure. And then which one is the market going to care about more cost versus uh, security guarantees? Yeah, exactly. Um, I think the cost side is still very TBD. We only Celestia is in production. Um, and I think it's fair to assume that EigenDA will... Uh, be able to match, I think it's, you know, the, the sort of cost improvements. Um, and then, so it maybe let's just say, we'll wait and see, uh, between all these solutions, if there actually is meaningful, meaningfully different cost improvements, but, you know, it could be the difference between fractions of, a you know, pennies on, on transaction fees, um, that I feel like may not actually really move the needle at the end of the day. I could be, I could be totally wrong, but I, I feel like cost is going to be kind of you know, uniform in terms of, uh, it's, they're all, they'll, they will all be orders of magnitude better than the status quo, uh, in terms of cost. So then it really comes down to security. Right. Um, and I think it's really depends on like what, if you've already decided what kind of rollup you want to launch, um, because I think there is sort of like one sort of comparison that we can make between these two DA solutions for uh, ETH settlement rollups. So these are rollups that have their um, their rollup contracts live on ETH L1, right? Uh, but they're posting data somewhere else versus I would say, you know, like Celestia native or Eigen DA native rollups, those that are basically just posting data to Celestia, but not, um, or, or Eigen DA, but not using, you know, uh, another chain for settlement contracts. Yeah, I thought you were bringing up an interesting point there, actually. Um, I was going to bring up the diagram of, I think this is an, a, a critical point to bring up, like, what, actually, here, uh, kind of lead in there, and then I might just jump in, and I want to I wanna define for the audience the difference between a smart contract roll-up on ETH versus a, um, a sure. sovereign roll-up. I feel like that's a sure. critical point to, yeah. Okay, so between these two solutions, uh, you know, I think, again, it's very different very important to differentiate between settlement and say sovereign rollups. Um, so, it, and maybe we can, yeah, go ahead. I actually think that's a, that's a really critical point to, to dive in on and just, just to level set with the audience. I'm sure people have probably heard this sort of generic difference of, okay, on ETH, you have smart contract rollups and there are even different flavors of smart contract rollup based rollups, et cetera. And then Celestia has been, you know, sort of famous for pushing this idea of the, of the sovereign rollup. And I think it's just, Actually, there's a Celestia has a great uh, just blog post on this. It's it's very simple, very short. They have pictures, <laughs> which as we all know mm -hmm. is great. And uh, and and I thought it would be helpful to actually just walk folks through the difference. So if you're following along via screen here, there's a very helpful sort of uh, visualization of what a smart contract rollup on ETH looks like. So you see the four functions of a blockchain: execution, settlement, consensus, and data availability. And you can see in the Ethereum land of a smart contract rollup, you're outsourcing execution to a smart contract rollup, but Ethereum still does settlement consensus and DA. Now, again, in the context of what we're talking about here is we're basically talking about unbundling one additional thing with alternative uh, data availability, alt-DA solutions. So, you know, in this future that you and I are discussing here that feels imminent, it, it, 
it's not Ethereum that you'd be outsourcing or doing a, that Ethereum nodes that we'd be doing DA, it would be Eigen DA or Celestia, right? So that's maybe one way that this could play out. I think it's important to understand what a sovereign rollup is and how that's different from smart contract rollup because I think that throws a little bit of a wrench in how you're thinking about it. So in a sovereign rollup, and again, it's, it's very helpful to look at the pictures here if you can, but what a sovereign rollup actually does is it does execution, but it also does settlement. And what you're outsourcing is consensus and DA to uh, data availability layer. And yeah. what this what this allows you, what this affords you just immediately, first of all, there's a difference in cost structure in between sovereign rollups and uh, smart contract rollups. But one of the other one of the other things that this affords you as an advantage is a settlement. You you have you know one of one of the downsides of the the smart contract rollups on Ethereum is that ultimately all the transactions that get executed up on the rollup layer are going to have to settle down to Ethereum, and Ethereum proposers are still ultimately responsible for the ordering. They're still the single source of truth, so to speak. And the most direct implications that this has for rollups is some lack of sovereignty over your fork choice rule. So for instance, in the in the case that there was ever some exploit on any of the ETH rollups today, you actually could you could do a hard fork, but where you have control over is assets that are issued on the smart contract rollup chain. But anything that's been bridged over to ETH, you you don't have control over, um, which makes it much less safe for you if you're a holder of an ETH bridged asset. Ultimately, on a sovereign rollup, because you have multiple different nodes that are all responsible for settlement, you can do a hard fork, and your the sort of assurances or uh, that that you have in terms of um, yeah, if if there ever were to be a hard fork, it's just much safer on a on a sovereign rollup. Exactly, but at the same time, you know, you still are relying on another layer for consensus and data availability, right? Um, and the beauty of the sovereign rollup that uses Celestia is that you know, even if ninety nine percent of those um, of the validators that you're relying on for data publishing um, and consensus are are being malicious, you will be able to know and then you control your own destiny, right? And you can hard fork and recover the state of the rollup back to where, you know, the data stopped being published. Um, right. You cannot do that with an ETH settlement rollup. Like that is, that is the big trade-off here. Um, I think that that also points to, you know, uh, some of the trade-offs around EigenDA and and Celestia, right? Because if you're an ETH settlement um, roll-up and Celestia is, you know, lying to you, basically, um, you can't really fork anyways, right? And so this sort of, you know, some of the benefits of, of what you get when you're a Celestia native roll-up um, in terms of, I think it really, like, kind of replicates the sovereignty of say a cosmos l1 with you know a fraction of the overhead cost you don't quite get all of those benefits if you're an eth settlement rollup using celestia it's it's still 100x cheaper right and it's great for for fees but you you're not basically taking full advantage of the reason that you know celestia is a blockchain right that downloads all of the data and has this amazing DA sampling network full of light nodes. Um, you get a lot of those benefits, but you know your your choice of being an ETH settlement rollup. You're you know inherently kind of you know uh, optimizing or, or choosing not to have that level of sovereignty. Yeah. Now I think what some folks would say is, well, hold on a second. Um, you know there are uh, companies out there. Uh, sovereign Labs is working working on how to do sovereign rollups on Ethereum. This is where I just I get a little confused. I know there's a technical solution here, but just from a high level where where my brain sort of gets turned into a pretzel and, and breaks is okay, I I I sort of understand that, you know, you could theoretically use any DA solution that you want. It doesn't have to be Celestia. Like that's not the only way that you can no. have something like any, You can use any L1, right? It's just right. should should you? Is that L1 you? good good for right. this function? Like you right. could use you I, I think Celestia, you know, and and uh, with the roll kit team has proved that you can, you know, have Bitcoin rollups uh, or at least Bitcoin sovereign rollups, rollups that post to Bitcoin. Um, is that going to give you the most performant rollup possible? Like, no, 
it's, but it is like a demonstration of the fact that you can, you know, with this sort of modular framework, you can use any sort of base layer. Celestia is the base layer that is like, uh, you know, in line with the app chain thesis, it is optimized to do one thing, right? And it's doing that one thing at the very bottom of the stack. Um, whereas, you know, other Cosmos chains are, are optimized to do one thing, but at the app layer, right? Um, so, yeah, I think I think that's that's kind of uh, a big part of this is, um, you know, I think there's a lot of back and forth between the two teams right now, um, specifically talking about the trade-offs for ETH settlement rollups. Um, and I think that, you know, it's it's kind of getting a bit confusing. I think so too. I think you nailed it. It's okay. People start, sometimes sort of get a little bit distracted about, is it technically possible to do this? Yeah, it may be technically possible to do it. Is it feasible and is it realistic is the much more pertinent high signal question to ask. And I don't know. I I, obvi- I I don't have direct access to the the costs, which I ultimately think is going to be, you know, there's some element of this as well is like, is DA going to be commoditized, you know, to front run a little conversation that, that you and I had that'll be coming out in mm-hmm. January. Like, is there Wagyu sort of DA or is it just kind of good <laughs> enough uh, to attain the security guarantees that you want? Um, that is, that's something that the market is going to ultimately have to prove out, but then there's a, a sort of squishier social layer and reason for choosing your DA solution where I, I think not to speak yeah. for you as well, but like, I'm not a huge fan of this ETH alignment sort of meme, but for the time being, I feel like it's still relatively powerful. So maybe sure. Eigen DA has a bit of a leg up there because, Hey, you're still, okay. You're not explicitly outsourcing your DA to, or using ETH node validators for DA, but you know, probably what's most likely going to happen is that e-stakers are going to opt into uh, through restaking, running these, you know, these this DA sort of solution. So it's still going to kind of, it still kind of feels ETH aligned, and maybe that's what a lot of ETH rollups do. And whereas for Celestia, I think how I was thinking about it was initially sort of being very competitive with Eigen DA on you know, stealing, sort of stealing rollups, so to speak, competing for the same pool of ETH rollups and, and getting them to outsource to Celestia versus EigenDA. And to be clear, I think that's probably what's going to happen in the next like six, nine months or so. And they'll they'll compete and Celestia will get some and EigenDA will get some. But I think what's started to excite me recently about Celestia is it's kind of a, I think Celestia's success will be determined by convincing the market and showcasing to the market that there is an alternative and in some ways superior construction of how rollups can happen. And from the perspective of a, a new entrepreneur that's building a rollup framework or an app chain or something like that, that, you know, I think that the hearts and minds battle to win here is you'd, I'd rather build a sovereign rollup on Celestia as opposed to a smart contract rollup on, on Ethereum. Yeah. I feel like right. that's the critical thing to, to win. I think it's, uh, that's the long game, I think. But the reality is that today, most rollups are ETH settlement rollups. So that's where the competition's going to really like uh, in the, in the near term, I think, um, heat up the most. And then, um, later, I think with sovereign labs and, and once RAS providers or, you know, the, the frameworks themselves providing RAS services, um, really launch, we'll begin to see, you know, the sovereign rollup as more of a, a viable option. But I think, you know, just to go back maybe to, to Eigen DA and, and why it's positioning itself, like how it's positioning itself, um, mm-hmm. it is even more specialized than Celestia. It's saying mm-hmm. we're not just specializing to be a DA layer, we are specializing to be a DA layer to ETH settlement rollups only. Like, it, right. I get Eigen DA actually doesn't make a lot of sense to use if you're not an ETH settlement rollup. I could be wrong. That's my sense. Um, but I think they've said, okay, here's where most of the market is today. Let's build a solution that's even more specialized. And guess what? These rollups already have an ordering service in terms of uh, living on Ethereum L1. That's where the settlement contracts are. So we actually don't need EigenDA to be its own chain with ordering and data publishing. We can just have this be a network of nodes that basically give data attestations. Um, and because, you know, this is where the ETH alignment thing comes in. Um, let's, you know, maybe we're, we're to start here. Okay. So first of all, ETH alignment, because we are going to um, basically have these nodes also be Ethereum validators. And because we're optimizing for DA scaling, 
And because we want a very large network, right, of, of these EigenDA validators, um, and because the EigenDA validators are already running full nodes of Ethereum, we mm -hmm. need to make this as light as possible. And so we're only going to send portions of the data to these node operators. Um, and then they're basically going to attest to it through a protocol called proof of custody. And they're going to basically send uh, serve data back to Ethereum. And once it hits Ethereum, that is the ordering, right? And so it's saying, okay, if we, if we just want to serve ETH settlement rollups, what is the optimal design? And that's where, you know, EigenDA is going with this. Now, the, the sort of other meta piece of ETH alignment here is that, let's be honest, if these DA solutions take off, that is the majority of L2 fees that would be going right. to L1 validators going to other networks, right? And mm -hmm. so you and I have talked about this before, like the, the less bullish case for Ethereum is that they outsource so many of these costs elsewhere, right? That rollups only are using like ETH for settlement and that's 10% of the fees that they pay today. So how do we like, you know, continue to reward, I guess, the, the network that is, you know, securing our whole rollup anyways, um, we might as well pay, you know, if we're going to pay a network of nodes for DA, it might as well be the same, you know, Ethereum validators that um, are securing our chain in the first place. So that's like kind of the 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 other piece of this where where they're you know kind of pitching the the alignment side. It's a very interesting question, and I internally flip flop about this quite a bit. And I think we're just going to have to see how this ultimately ends up playing out, but. Here, I think people really talk past each other on fees. This is going to sort of intersect with fees and the fee markets. But generally, there are two camps on Twitter that say fees are good. It shows that people are using the the uh, the block space. There's demand for block space, which I agree with. Where I mm -hmm. don't really agree is that people have started to contort Ethereum into a PNL and say this is ETH revenue. I don't agree with that. I view ETH as a commodity. Um, and I think actually, and, and there's, then there's this concept of like, where is a network in its life cycle? Um, should you be at the value capture stage now? Or if, you know, cause it, it makes it more expensive for devs, um, as opposed to in the beginning, should you be trying to lower fees and just attract new developers and users? And ultimately, you know, the original purpose of fees, fees are a, uh, a gating mechanism or a rate limiting mechanism. It's, it's against, you know, civil attacks, right? A DOS attacks, like that's that's the whole purpose of ETH and, or uh, fees in general. And there's probably some concept of like a parabola here of where your optimal fees are. So if your fees are weight, like to, your, to use a really, uh, you know, hyperbolic example, if your fees are probably Solana's fees today are, are too low, like right? 0.0001 cents, you're not pricing your resources appropriately. And eventually you're going to overload the network. Um, if fees were a million dollar gas, you know, per transaction, that'd be way too much. You're actually losing a bunch of transactions. There's this kind of the concept of deadweight loss. There's some, uh, appropriate amount of fees and fees up good and low fees. Good are probably, it's probably not the right way of there's a, it's an optimization problem and it's, and it's somewhere in the middle. I think another, another thing that, you know, I'm curious about as well, cause I think it has direct implications for, which DA solution ultimately ends up taking off is like, what is the market structure going to look like for L2s? So something you and I have talked about quite a bit as well, yeah. but I, I was listening to the Van Eck, uh, uh, Matthew, I'm blanking at Matthew Siegel, I believe of uh, over at Van Eck research did it, did an episode on Bankless where he was predicting the consolidation of L2s this coming year. And I was thinking to myself, I'm really torn on that because, and he pointed to crypto exchanges as a, as a, and an analog. And yes, right now, crypto exchanges are consolidating, but how long did that process take miles? It took years, years and years to do. So I could I could see a continued fragmentation at the L2 layer, but what might catalyze a change there and more of a focus on interoperability is the UX. The more layer twos that you add where there's meaningful, like an adapt that only exists on this L2 and not on that L2, I think the... You know, even if you extrapolate that out to 30 layer twos that have meaningful dApps on it, you have significantly degraded the UX of a user of Ethereum. And yeah. they're they going to have to prioritize that. Otherwise, chains like Solana are going to ultimately end up succeeding. And this is where I think Celestia has an, has a, a, an advantage as well, because you know, they're a Cosmos chain. And not only do you have 
you know, IBC over there, but there's also just more of a cultural focus on interoperability. Like the idea of yeah. Cosmos is starting out as a network of connected app chains. And I just, I think, honestly, it, I think it's probably already at the breaking point. Even if you didn't add any additional layer twos, the fragmentation just makes the UX shitty. Even if the bridges are great, it still sucks to have to bridge between these things. It, it, I don't know. It's So I think that might actually hasten and catalyze a change. And then that has implications for, for instance, EigenDA's decision to focus only on ETHL2s. Um, I don't know. That's, I think, another important question to ask. I mean, I think they're both not betting on the consolidation of L2s. I think yeah. if L2s, at least on Ethereum, consolidate into like a couple of major hubs, then these DA solutions don't really have businesses, in my opinion, because, um, you know, it's just the number of customers are, are extremely low. And those rollups can probably be profitable on their own, if that's the case, um, without having to, you know, use these all DA solutions. So I think the alt DA solutions are, you know, the precondition for there to be this like huge web of rollups. And then, yeah, we deal with the interoper interoperability problems. Um, or we just, you know, deal with like a lot of, you know, improve the onboarding experiences so that you don't necessarily need to like be bridging across. Maybe you're like, you know, using Privy to spin up a new wallet for an app chain um, that you just want to try out, right? And then if you really like it, you can bridge some assets over later uh, from your main wallet. So anyways, I think that is, that's definitely a part of this, um, but it's not, a, I, I think it, it's, it's slightly separate. Um, and I think that, yeah, I think, you, I think, you, I think you are right in that, you know, it, the proliferation of like rollups is probably, you know, it's just going to be a little bit like the UX is going to be probably a little bit better in the Celestia world, just because, you know, we in, in Cosmos has been kind of preparing for this and they have IPC and a lot of things. Although this week people <laughs> tried to buy some bad kids and, and it seemed like nobody had a good experience in Cosmos anyway. So there's like a lot, there's like a long way to go, even with the ecosystem that's been, you know, preparing for this future for since inception. Right. Um, it's, yeah. it's a really good point. I think I, I think I texted you and I was like, dude, I'm trying to, I was a little bit ahead of the curve, but I was like, I'm trying to buy a bad kid. I literally can't figure out how to do this. And it's made, it's made me so sad. Yeah. I know. Like, I know. Yeah. Well, but, but it actually doesn't feel like it's that wild. It feels like a solvable problem, at least in Cosmos. And where I was actually getting hung up specifically is in Kepler, you know, you, usually your experience with if you have a Phantom or MetaMask or something like that and you connect to a DEX, it will just see your account balances and you can trade. Where I was getting hung up from the Kepler UX, UX experience is, you know, you actually, you can see, you can log on to something like Cosmosis and it'll see your Kepler wallet. But because there are actually multiple different chains, you know, it doesn't just pick up your account balance. You actually have to deposit into Osmosis, which is it's just, look, is that wickedly complicated? No. Was it confusing for me as a crypto native? Yeah, it was actually confusing for me. It just added a little bit of friction. And when you when you're in a, when you're in a bull market, you're that those frictions are actually critically important. This is when all the users come in, right? The meta is going to change. It's already changing. You know, no one really spends on marketing. Everyone builds product during bear markets. That is going to change. This is when all all of your users are going to come in in the next year. Like you're going to grab as many of them as you possibly can. You're going to try to hold on to them through the bear market, and then you're going to repeat it. And UX is going to be a big thing. And for, for both, for both Cosmos and Celestia and Ethereum, not picking on any of these ecosystems, we are going to have to figure out interoperability. In what mm -hmm. I Because I already think for as many changes as there are on Cosmos and Ethereum, let's say we get no additional new ones, it's already broken. Like bridging sucks. You should only have to do that when you're moving between big trust zones or ecosystems. I, I just, it's too... There needs to be better interop. I view it as a massive uh, impediment. I think, um, yeah, a couple of things there. So I think there are some UX tricks that um, will be coming in on the Cosmos side, like uh, with, I think it, next month's uh, SDK upgrade, you'll have fee abstraction. So you can pay fees, you can pay gas fees in any token. You don't need a new token for every, you know, chain you, 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 you are active on. Um, and, you know, there'll be lots of like kind of one click tricks. So even though these assets are like held on different chains, uh, if you say, you know, I want to trade on osmosis, it's 
going to abstract away that hop that that got you uh in the background so th these are like the things that you you don't really even learn until a, a bull market comes back and like new users come in who haven't used it and you're like oh yeah shit, we should we should figure that out um and then i think just yeah props to skip by the way who's lead like just going so far out of their way to help with this. Sam Hart did this great Twitter post uh, a couple days ago. Hey, if anyone's using Cosmos and there's something on the UX, like I will help build this. Uh, yes. Just yes. so props to Skip on just dedicating you know, scarce <laughs> company resources to just doing good things for the ecosystem. Like they're just, those guys are the real heroes. Yeah, they are. They're the, the grow, grow the grow the pie for for Cosmos. Um, and then I would just say mm -hmm. two more things on the interrupt that I think give me hope is one this sort of intense um or you know market maker based bridges where the you know complexity and the risk um so maybe like the settlement time and all of that complexity is pushed on to the market maker uh and the user gets basically their order filled on the destination chain immediately or destination roll up immediately um we have you know projects like across are, are kind of spearheading this but i think there's a lot more coming and then the other piece is, uh, you know, all of these storage and state proof providers, I think are going to help a lot, right? So let's say um, you have a, an app on, you know, Starknet and you, you know, are, let's say it's a, a lending and borrowing app on, on Starknet. If I want to use this app, I actually may not even have to move my assets from ETH L1. So this app is going to say, for give me a store, give me a storage proof to show what your account balance is on L1. Okay, based off of that, you can borrow off of you know that collateral without actually having to bridge these things. So, I think that technology is going to take a little while to get really, um, um, I would say, you know, implemented into a lot of DApps. But um, between that and then with bridges moving towards pushing. You know the shitty wait times, the settlement risk to market makers who are going to front you your liquidity. Like we're coming, we're coalescing on some models that actually I think are going to begin to uh, to solve these things. But they may not be ready in time for this bull market. I think that's the that's the pertinent question, which is I I'm not sitting here saying this is an unsolvable problem. It's a hundred percent a solvable problem, but it has implications. How how quickly you solve this problem has implications for how your chain is going to do in this coming this coming ecosystem i i totally agree and and you know maybe maybe for that reason there is like a consolidation of activity around these big these big hubs for the foreseeable you know mid to near term uh near to midterm but yeah maybe back to yeah wrap up on the on the alt da solutions yeah 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 so yeah, we, we, we straight a little bit there but <laughs> i know well it's but it has so basically i i can't remember i heard this so long ago but you know, real this. Oh, this was a Kathy Wood thing where innovation actually comes from radical decreases in cost. And she used mm. the example of the human genome. So yep. remember, there was that pro, you know, that whole project a couple of years ago. I should go back and look at it, but it cost me, man, it might have even been, I don't want to say something stupid, but I can't really remember it, but definitely in the millions, potentially, you know, high sort of nine figure bill. It was this whole human genome sequencing project. It took years before they finally sequenced. A human genome and then you know if you fast forward about 10 years you can do that and pay like 300 bucks i mean yeah. so so then the amount of things that you can do with uh you know build businesses around on that now that it's economical you know you just sort of get this explosion in innovation and i do on the same at the same time that everyone is starting to fade the app chain thesis etc we're about to get a massive unlock in costs and explosion in economics for roll-up frameworks and i don't know look that you and i've you and i've been talking about this for so long there's so many things you can do when you have complete sovereignty and ownership over your block space that is just much more difficult on when you're building on a yeah on general yeah, I mean, block let's, space, let's so. talk let's talk about the, the status quo today of app chains is either you can basically be an eth settlement roll-up app chain which is you know, prohibitively expensive apart from like mm -hmm. the most successful dApps or you can be a cosmos chain which requires you to basically be an expert at, you know, the chain level as well as the app level and everything in between. Um, and mm -hmm. there's just not a lot of teams that can do that. Um, right. Where we're moving the future is we have those two options still, but now we have two new options. We have ETH settlement rollups that use alt DA solutions. So 
now you can do, you know, as easy the, you know, couple clicks with conduit and also have a economically viable rollup if your app is, you know, gets some decent amount of usage. Or you have, can be a sovereign rollup on Celestia, which I think gives you pretty much as close as possible to the full sovereignty and all the benefits you'd get with a Cosmos chain without having to deal with the overhead, right? And so now we've got, I would say, like uh, cheaper and almost uh, equally good version of a Cosmos chain, and we have a cheaper ten, you know, hundred x cheaper version of an ETH settlement rollup, and so. That just opens up the market, right? To more to this model is now viable for for so many new applications. Um, when today they're they're just not viable, or like teams don't know how to you know build a whole chain. Yeah, it's and you know what? Actually, one even additional stop on this. I feel like of all of the little metaphors and things that you and I have talked about in the last year on the show, I think this kind of sovereignty, ownership over your block space spectrum is going to ultimately probably come down as maybe the most useful way to think about different or different uh, applications today. And if, again, sort of to use the, if you have all the way over here, like total composability, you, you atomicity between different, um, you know, atomic composability between different dApps, a dApp on ETH L1, and then a full stack app chain over here, there are so many different flavors in between. And there's a spectrum of trade-offs, which is now being, I think, meaningfully explored. So... Yeah maybe on um maybe a a sovereign app chain would be you know one step uh to the right um if yep. you're following along yep. your plans, <laughs> yeah. of a full stack app chain then maybe there's something like a uh op stack what am i the law of chains your op stack law of chains type thing over here another interesting new rung i think that just got added to that actually is this very interesting debate around fees in Solana. So this sort this sort of came out of this this research discussion that that we we're both at um you know this week. And one one of the things that was frankly very interesting is you know the current implementation of local fee markets on Solana leaves a lot to be desired. I think basically the incentive still exists to spam because priority fees, this my intuition about priority fees, they basically work like they do in Ethereum, where they're very they're deterministic and you know the validators or the block builders realistically today will just line up transactions in both in 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 terms of how they get paid the most and if you pay more you can be added at the top of this block but solana has multiple different cores and the priority fee isn't as deterministic so the incentive actually still exists to spam um yep. so they haven't really they've kind of they've helped it a little bit but they haven't totally fixed it and there's another issue i mean really the spam problem still exists in solana and they're considering there's a, there's a very interesting proposal out there, actually, which is, I think, over a year old, but is starting to to regain steam. And it is uh, SIMD0016. Um, and this is program uh, rebatable account right fees, PRA fees. Yeah, we're going to have to work on the branding a little bit about this particular <laughs> proposal. But, but it is... Yeah. But... It is, it is, uh, the reason it's kind of interesting is it's generated an enormous amount of attention and maybe controversy isn't the right word, but people really have strong feelings about this and line up on both sides, which is exactly how people felt about 1559 as well. I'm not saying this is 1559 or in that, in that same ballpark, but again, one of the, one of the problems with the way that fee markets work on Solana today is that you can just, uh, lock, uh, basically lock any account, um, and you, it, you're not charged to to do that. So if you, you know, are a DAP developer, someone can basically either spammers or even competitors can basically just lock your account for no charge. You can't protect against this, et cetera. What mm -hmm. this is, what this is doing is it's introducing a a fee that the owner of Solana accounts can can charge. And what you can do for your organic users, you can just immediately rebate that fee. Um, back. So you wouldn't even really notice it from a UX perspective as a user. You have to pay a fee to, you know, write lock to this specific account, your action ends up happening, and then the DAP can rebate that fee. On the other hand, though, what they can do, the, the critical thing about this proposal is that um, if a transaction fails, you still owe, you still owe that amount. So if you're a spammer, and you're just write locking a whole bunch of different accounts, and these transactions are failing, suddenly you're getting charged this fee, and the DAP can just decide not to rebate you. And that's 
that's pretty powerful. And what what it is is it's sort of miles a form of sovereignty here, right? Mm -hmm. This will for for those uh, Cosmos folks that are listening, it's sovereignty over a small partition of general block space, which is the accounts that you own and have created yep. as a DApp developer. So yep. pretty interesting. There's there's an enormous amount of discussion around fees and the Solana ecosystem at the yeah. current moment. So yeah. So I, maybe just to contextualize this, like um, I don't know if you agree with this, but I think I think it's pretty hard to argue with the fact that the larger you get as an application, the larger the incentives are to own more of the stack or control all of your economics. Right. Right. And I think Solana is not like, um, you know, they're aware of this fact uh, and they're mm -hmm. aware that if an app basically starts taking up, you know, represents the majority of value being created or the majority of fees on Solana, the incentives to then move to their own chain are very high. Right. And so how do we, you know, how does, like, if I'm a Solana developer, how do I think about keeping these apps, even the most successful ones in the network, despite these incentives? And I think that this is getting towards that sort of idea of like, how do we keep them on Solana, but give them more ownership? Um, and, and it seems like maybe this is my like pretty non-technical read on it, but it's kind of giving more ownership to the devs over their contracts and their their applications, right? They can, they actually now have, can customize control like of very, you know, critical economics versus like this would never happen on Ethereum, right? The uh, yeah. Ethereum, it's like, we want to basically keep all the economics like of the base layer completely separate and unaware of what's happening at the app level. Um, and I think this is Solana saying, okay, in, you know, a couple of years, if we have big dApps, how do we stop them from like going to Cosmos or going to, you know, uh, launch their own, even a Solana rollup, right? Like, how do we keep them all here? Because that actually, you know, like our whole value prop is having everything in one place, right? Um, and I think this is getting towards that, but I don't know. Did you have the same read? I do. I do have the same read. I'll tell you, I think there's one more angle that's worthwhile exploring here is the history of updates to fee markets across uh, crypto and actually several other sort of related branches of research and development like MEV, mm -hmm. there is a through line. The through line is a, first of all, these, these sorts of things are always contentious because there's a redistribution of value across multiple stakeholders. And always, always the push is away from the proposer. It's yeah, always right. away from the validators. And that is, I think, the generally unsaid thing about, at least in the Ethereum ecosystem, when you talk to people that are deep in the MEV ecosystem, like, well, yeah, there's one stakeholder here who's getting paid way too much, and it's the proposer. And yeah. we basically did an entire season uh, you know, with, with Dan Robinson on, on how, like how at the app layer of Ethereum, you know, people are dead set before there's even a, you know, a distribution of value between swappers and LPs in a DEX. You're, we're trying to re reduce the MEV leakage that's going to proposers today. And that is another through line of, of this I think, Solana proposal, because right now a lot of those fees are just going to a proposer where this actually allows a little bit more autonomy and frankly, value capture for DAP developers, like sovereignty yep. over their accounts. So I think that's another through line, which is basically a lot of folks in crypto, you know, you, you don't really, it's kind of like marketing, right? You, you don't... <laughs> You think you're paying too much, but you don't know exactly how much. And it's actually really critical. So in the beginning, just overpay the proposers and the validators of your ecosystem. But eventually, that's like the very first stakeholder that you look to redistribute some value. Away. Yeah, just like aggregation to, you know, we had an aggregation period to the proposer. Now it's being completely disaggregated um, and in a lot of ways, right? Either order flow auctions, um, doing more and more compute off chain. We have now right. pushing like shadow events off chain. We have lots of, uh, I would say lots of ways that like, I, I guess all this value is, or at least people are trying to make this value flow back to the applications themselves. Um, and I think, you know, Ethereum is kind of <laughs> working around some sort of baseline constraints that everybody understands, whereas Solana has got a little bit more of a, a flexible, more flexible design space. Um, and I think it's notable that, you know, this is this like proposals co-authored, right. By the mango, um, the, the mango mm -hmm. markets team. And, you know, you don't 
see any EIPs like that are being proposed by DApps uh, over on Ethereum, right? Like I think if Uniswap like were to submit an EIP that says, hey, this would really help us, people would probably not react uh, so positively where I think it's pretty interesting that I think, you know, first of all, Solana DApps um, the, and the builders themselves are like very, very uh, um, it, like, aware of what's happening at the chain level and incorporating all of these dynamics into their applications that feels mm -hmm. a little bit more like cosmos almost right um and and they're actually have influence in some of these decisions over core core roadmap items um i think that's bullish that's good there i should agree. be there, sh would... there should be more interfacing between the platforms and the apps right that just makes sense it's a, it's a platform for apps I, I'm with you, Miles. I'm with you. Although I would say I do think this actually happens in Ethereum as well. Like I, yeah. I don't think it's as explicit, but uh, my sense is that, for instance, not to pick, but you know, Uniswap or Aave or whatever. I think there's some plenty of lobbying that goes on with EIPs as well. And um, like, if you talk to a lot of the ETHAP developers, they will know exactly when you know, updates to Ethereum are coming, not just because it's relevant, because they've been involved in it as well. But, and yeah, that, that's the cool sort of moment in time thing about Solana today. It First of all, they're just, everyone loves to root for an underdog. Um, they're, they're younger in their existence, right? They're not as mature as a chain. So they're getting, I mean, one of the advantages that they have is they can move a little bit faster. They can be slightly less concerned about breaking things, just like Ethereum was in its early days, right? Now, Ethereum kind of seems like this, older, more ossified sort of chain. And there are, there are advantages of, <laughs> of that. And eventually Solana is probably going to be like that too. But at this particular moment in time, there's just a lot more change, uh, rapid yeah. change happening in that ecosystem. So um, it's a lot of fun. But I will say, you know, the value of an older ossified chain, probably more secure as well. Um, so yeah. I, I would say pros and cons, right, to each one of these things. We don't need to be. I agree. I agree. It's like Ethereum's doing kind of incumbent things right but uh right. to their they they on the flip side of that it's the lindy right that i think for especially financial applications like there there is no kind of substitute for trust um so yeah i agree it'll be interesting to see how it plays out um and when you know we kind of keep going back from like right now it's all about cost and interoperability problems like which sort of ecosystem already has that solved like solana um but then i think we'll probably over index towards these big like you know general purpose platforms and then we'll come back to the app chain thesis once uh you know there are new viable models that, that have been battle tested um so i think it'll just kind of go back and forth for a little while and then we'll find some equilibrium all right, everyone, we will be back to the program in just a moment. But before we do, I want to share something that Blockworks has been cooking up for these last couple of months. March of this coming year in London, Blockworks is hosting DAS London, the largest institutionally focused conference in all of crypto. We are gathering 1,200 of the world's largest asset managers. So think TradFi macro funds, crypto native funds, big allocators, and financial institutions. So banks, payment processors, etc. all in one spot. It's very rare to get the likes of Goldman, JP Morgan, Point72, whatever, all in one room so you can know what the big money is doing. We're diving into the themes that they care about. So we're talking about the intersection of macro and crypto, where we are in the cycle, real-world assets, so everything from stable coins to on-chain treasuries to tokenized assets. It's going to be a blast. But the other reason you really want to go is London, baby. Center of the world at one point. You got pub culture, you got fish and chips, great beer. It's going to be a blast. So because you're such great listeners to Bell Curve, there's a code BELL20 that's going to get you 20% off. So click the link at the bottom of this episode. It'll take you right over to the home page you'll see all of our speakers and use bell 20 for 20 percent off ticket prices are going up soon make sure you go use that code and i will see you in sunny london town in march i would also say you know jason had this funny interaction with someone who was involved in the building of the internet in the 90s and jason was describing this battle of modular versus monolithic today he's like that's so funny that literally happened in the internet he pulls up this diagram of the seven layers of the internet um, and there was this whole battle about there's a fully modular or fully integrated stack versus one that's entirely modular. Have people started talking about hybrid yet? You know, whereas instead of fully entirely integrated or totally modular, you actually have certain parts that are like it was a seven layer stack for the internet. Maybe these two or these three layers, there's kind of a winning bundle across different layers in the stack. And that I, you know, obviously analogies are by 
you know, sort of definition are imperfect, but that feels intuitively like what's going to happen here as well. There are going to be different flavors of what plays out and being a totally modular maxi versus a totally integrated maxi, you know, big world, yeah. lots of room to grow, right. I would say. I think that's a, I loved that analogy. Um, and maybe just a, like going back to Eigen DA and Celestia, let's like that plays in here, right? Because Eigen DA is just DA publishing. Uh, Celestia is DA publishing and consensus, right? So that right. could be considered yeah. a hybrid and it's being a hybrid because combining those two things allows it to serve a really unique value to say sovereign rollups that now have like superpowers. Um, mm -hmm. but if you didn't combine those two things, you know, maybe that's better for ETH settlement rollups that don't have those superpowers. Um, or maybe they're the same. I think. Yeah, maybe just to, to wrap up on that, like I, I think this is it's super emergent. I don't think like the product trade offs are gonna really like uh, come through to most developers for a long time. Mm. Um, I think brand is gonna be extremely important in messaging here. Um, I think you know Celestia obviously has a big head start in terms of the fact that they have integrations with all the big frameworks, but you know Eigen DA is definitely pushing those the ETH alignment and the fact that. Hey, you guys are already using, you know, Ethereum for, for ordering. You can just use something even more modular right, in us. Um, and so, yeah, we'll, we'll see how it plays out, but, um, I think, I think it will be interesting. I agree. I agree. Now, one more, one more thing to cover here, and this is, we're departing a little bit from the crypto nativity, but just, you know, we're, we're nearing year end and we should actually do a predictions episode. I was, I was thinking, um, I've, I've got a couple of things that I've been thinking about, <laughs> I know putting on the spot, but one thing that's, uh, you know, as we're, as we're nearing the, the close of the year here. So moving a little bit out into the world of more macro, we had a really important, probably the most important FOMC of the year that happened yesterday. Uh, so Wednesday, FOMC is when, you know, Chair Powell at the Federal Reserve will say, hey, this is basically we're raising rates, we're leaving them unchanged, or we're lowering them. He left them unchanged, but he did show a dot plot, which is an aggregation of how other uh, folks at the Federal Reserve see interest rates playing out over the course of the next year. And they were basically pricing in uh, three cuts. So the dot plot and what the market ends up pricing in are two different things. The dot plot has been wrong in the past, but it was a very dovish sort of conference. And it just strikes me going into this year, uh, this new year, that a lot of stuff that was headwinds, like here, here's why it sucks so much when a bear market, you can feel it coming on. It's just, there's no light at the end of the tunnel, Miles. It's just, you, so everything is going against you at the same time. So you have, you have the macro regime, you have rates going against you, which sucks. You've got this psychological, okay, it's historically played out in four-year increments. I know it's going to be at least two years of absolute crap. There was that. You had the regulatory stuff that was moving against us simultaneously in the US. It's just everything was going against you. But now, I don't know. You have So first of all, you're moving back into a positive sort of bullish regime for assets, liquidity, all that type of thing that we know crypto does super well in. You've got a potential Bitcoin ETF and... Within within 30 days, and then also the having in in April, which has historically been really positive, you've got um, you've got a positive regulatory environment here. So courts have pushed back on a lot of the uh, what's been going on with the SEC. I don't know, baby. We, we got we got headwinds turning into tailwinds. Is how yeah. I'm feeling going into this this next year. So, and all of this cool stuff that the infra has come a long way. So I'll be honest, like I've been less active on chain during bear markets. I've been much yeah. more active recently and it is a much better experience than I remember in a really relatively short period of time. So yeah. I don't know. I'm just super optimistic and excited going into this year is how I feel. I, I agree. You know, like <laughs> I don't closely track these macro developments. Um, I basically rely on you for that. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, it was, it did feel a little weird when like crypto felt like we are back. Um, but you know, rates, there were really like no, uh, tons of news about like rates coming back and the like the rest of the non-crypto market coming back. So it's more like, you know, it's always a little, um, it, it's, it's less, less certain in terms of like whether or not a bull market's back when it's just crypto ripping. So, um, mm -hmm. maybe this is the start of like other things or maybe crypto just front runs. Like a lot of these announcements are like general sentiment. I don't know. I think it does. I think crypto front runs expectations around liquidity. It's I think it's actually become a pretty decent 
indicator for that. I think it's why it did so poorly so fast uh, back in 2021 when they did their their pivot. And uh, that's why I think it's doing that's why I think it's doing well now. I think probably yeah, the economy looks like it's or it's, it's I don't even know if the economy is picking up, but it's there's a more bullish environment for asset prices, especially risk yeah. assets. So, yeah. Even like bad kids went up. <laughs> we're, we're in great shape. <laughs> Cosmos can oh, have like, a, yeah, an expensive NFT. This is great. Let's go, um, baby. We love the bad yeah. kids. Dude, you have a great bad kid. I didn't even realize how you, you've got a very oh, exclusive good I, one. I, yeah. I will I will reveal my bad kid. One. Dude, you got to make that uh, the profile picture. That's a, that's a little flex. You got in early. You got a bad kid from a while ago. I was going to open you I up. You're going to get some just, airdrops. I can't, I can't abandon my Casey Affleck uh, PFP. I, I it just, love it's, that. It's I, my logo. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's so funny. Wait, didn't you were at uh, uh, Cosmoverse or something a little while ago and they put that, the organizer just yeah. assumed that that was you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like speaking uh, at Cosmoverse and there's just a huge picture of Casey Affleck wearing a Dunkin' Donut or like a Bruins hat in the background, like smoking a cig or something like that. And uh, yeah, that was funny. Yeah. All my friends got a kick like, out of that one. Yeah. White Boston guy, this checks out. This is exactly what <laughs> yeah. I was picturing, basically. Exactly. This, uh, this exactly. feels exactly right. So funny. Oh, uh, boy. Yeah. Anyways, it's good stuff. All We're right, back. partner. Yeah, we are. Yeah. Well, knock on wood, but yeah. It's knock on better. Yeah, um, sure, sure. All right. All right, partner. Uh, this was a fun one. Have a great week. See you, man. Yeah, cheers.